pilot. Pilot? What's a pilot? Well, the way they pick TV shows is they make one show. That show's called a pilot. And they show that one show to the people who pick shows. And on the strength of that one show, they decide if they want to make more shows. Some get chosen and become television programs. Some don't. Become nothing. She started one of the ones that became nothing. Last week, we discussed The Wire. And I mentioned during that discussion that I had tried watching that show years before when I was in my mid-20s, and it just didn't click with me. I got as far as early season two, and I just didn't want to continue watching. But as we discussed, uh, now that I'm older, I had a better appreciation for the pilot episode and what it was setting up. So I'm giving it another go. And I've actually already watched the whole first season again. Whoa. <laughs> and s- started season two. I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch The Wire. Are you it, enjoying it? I mean, like, what's it's. I am. I am. I feel like I'm actually more in tune to the show and I am on board with the moments that are tense. I'm just hitting the beats of the show in a way that I just wasn't able to my first time watching. And I'm very excited. I just, I have to see this because this show is like, I feel like people who watch The Wire are in another level of just TV fandom. I can't say I'm a student of television if I haven't seen The Wire. It has to be a show I see in my lifetime. So I might as well do it now that we had this discussion last week and you know, uh, I'm I'm going down the road and I'm binging it. I haven't binged a show in a very long time. It might not be the most bingeable show, but I figured, you know, if I lose traction, I might have a hard time getting back into it. If you're binging it now, it gets been like I like I said last week, I didn't start binging it until season three because okay. that's when I thought I was hooked. But man, like I, he doesn't even pop up in the pilot, but. Omar. Omar, such a yeah. great character. Really great character. And what I really enjoy about the show, too, is, at least in the first season, there's such a rich world of not just your main players in this Baltimore crime scene, but your smaller players. It's like a whole ecosystem, right? You have your big beasts and you have your scavengers and so forth. And there's so many layers. It's a layers. chess game. It really is. And what turned me off did my initial watch when I got to season two about all these new characters coming in, a whole new setting. I'm actually intrigued by that now, right? The kind of things that threw me off when I was younger are the kind of things that are keeping me hooked this time around. So uh, I'll keep you posted. It's like when you – That's awesome. How you decide to keep it um, – how, how you decide to keep up with Buffy – I'm now doing that with The Wire. And that was kind of one of the goals of this podcast is to see which pilots actually do really hook us in and, and inspire us to watch a new show. So that's uh, that's one for me with The Wire. Uh, so today, though, we are continuing our series on HBO pilots. And what we have today is Deadwood. And, you know, the Western genre is one that I am not as familiar with, but I know Keith as a much more 
experienced viewer of film and television. I know that you are very familiar with the Western genre. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I think it's a very much an American staple. And this was a genre, from what I understand, really was peaking in the 60s and 70s in popularity. And it had a revival, a resurgency in the 2000s, even though there had been other Westerns in between those two times. But, you know, I feel like in the 2000s, yeah, that's when we got some uh, really good Coen Brother movies that took place in the Old West. And now we have this show, Deadwood, that is really an authentic, uh, tried and true Western, right? It's just, it's not like a spin on the Western. It's just a very authentic Western done by HBO. And, you know, when you think HBO does a Western, I think Deadwood is kind of what you would imagine in a good way. Yeah. uh, Like Westerns in general are expensive. They're expensive to do. And that's why, you know, outside of the 60s on television, I mean, you had Bonanza, uh, that ran for like 14 seasons. Uh, it's just, it, it costs a lot of money and this show costs a lot of money and it shows in the detail, but yeah, that's why people really didn't, you know, when it comes to television and Westerns, you really didn't see anything until Deadwood. And even then it's not cops and robbers. It's life. Yeah, you you have all different kinds of sorted characters and you get more of a fuller world, right? It's not just one guy versus another. Uh, As we'll get into the discussion of the pilot story, you really have uh, a a whole full realized community here that's getting set up. So I find that very interesting. And period pieces, I am kind of a sucker for because... I I do really like the authentic ones that give you a true look into what life was like in a bygone era. And I think the show definitely does that, especially in the first episode. Uh, And you mentioned the budget. And I'll get, I want to get into that towards the end of our discussion today when it comes to the ultimate fate of this show. And budget being something that obviously for any production company, TV or film, is a major issue in how a project proceeds. Uh, but yeah, HBO kind of playing more as a, it, sort of a hybrid of TV and film in this case, I would think. You know, it's like every episode is like a film for this show and as we discover for some other shows later down the line. It's kind of like a play. I, I've been trying, like, ever since I watched it, just trying to figure out what kind of writing. I could equate this to, and it is really like if if you're watching like a Tennessee Williams with Sopranos and a documentary style with The Wire, this is, and it won't it definitely won't be the first time other shows get equated to it. It definitely feels like Shakespearean. Oh yeah, I can see that. I feel like the Western setting is a really good place to reinterpret a lot of Shakespearean archetypes and story structures, and it's also there's a pageantry yes. to a Western. You know, there's uh, obviously you have, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, pun intended, but there's just um, there's a theatricality to it as well as this, the cinematic element as well. It's kind of like the best of both worlds. So uh, just to get to a little bit of the history here behind the Deadwood pilot. Uh, so this show, uh, the first episode aired on March 21st, 2004 on HBO to 5.79 million viewers. 
So we're getting, Damn. we're seeing that pilot episode viewership grow and grow with each series. And at this point in 2004, I think HBO Now has been well established as a, a prestige network with some of the best programming that you're going to find in TV. It, and already some of the best programming in TV history at this point. So people are going to tune in to what's next because the track record has been so strong up to now. Well, it definitely like reinvigorated the water cooler. HBO, I think, for the past 20 yeah, the past 20 or so years has owned the water cooler discussion. And like, I, I got to give credit to, I, I don't know if she's still working. I mean, she probably isn't, but Carolyn Strauss, who was like really managing the shows at this time. And we've talked about her before. She's the one that kind of had the lineup uh, and really knew what, like the best shows to fit the HBO brand at the time. Well, I think what also helps is because of that track record that the network has and the reputation that it's established, they are drawing in talent. I think the best ideas are now coming to HBO first and foremost because they know that this is a place where creativity can really thrive and a network that is going to back up its content creators uh, because you know obviously the results speak for themselves. So the creator of the show, David Milch, uh, he's created a lot of shows before Deadwood, but most notably NYPD Blue was his biggest hit. I think that was a very long-running show on network television. Um, and for HBO, he Milch initially wanted to uh, create a show set in ancient Rome. His idea was to focus a story on how civilization is formed out of chaos, which is an interesting idea. But... Ancient Rome setting was going to work because HBO had another show called Rome already in development. So he switched the setting then to the Old West. And how tempting is that? HBO does a, a Western. That that alone is the elevator pitch. Say no more. But but even like the 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 theme, just like chaos and disorder, like just the seeds of a civilization and because like David Milch did his research, like the, like they read, they read so much, but that describes Deadwood. Like, it's kind of funny. I was thinking that this show takes place like 1879 across on the other, not the other side of the country, but all the way in New York, that's the Gilded Age going on. Like there's civilization there. That's when like, the Carnegies yep. and the Rockefellers are duking duking it out. That's Age of Innocence. Uh, the other HBO show, G Gilded Age, which is like on TV now, but but like right. right now there are people like they're in hell. They're walking through mud. They look like they all stink. Yeah, but some people seek that out. Oh right? no, that's such a, that's the great American it, spirit. It's a very interesting contrast, you're right, from the very overly developed cities on the East Coast, right? Because this is also the height of the Industrial Revolution. And so on one hand, we have uh, a very fast-paced, uh, growing civilization. And on the other hand, here out in the Old West, we have just a newly formed society that is still, like you said, in the mud, still being formed from very basic materials. Lawless. Yes, and as we find out, a lot of people who come to this 
settlement of Deadwood, that's what they want. They want to get away from the overly infrastructure world of the cities, and they want to come to a place where they see there's more opportunity, although that also comes with a lot more danger. And not to say that the city was a perfectly safe place either. I mean, but, you know, out in the Old West, certainly uh, it's going to be, like you said, very lawless. And ironically enough, that does appeal to a lot of people, at least to a lot of people who weren't finding any opportunity back on the coast. And the at least with the uh, great appeal to Deadwood was not only because of that, but gold, <laughs> Like, but they, like, like prospecting. It's what, uh, it's why people went went so far out to California. But yeah, you know what's so interesting about that age too? The gold rush, right? That is something that, like you said, went all the way out to California. In fact, um, I've been to Old Town, Sacramento, which oh, okay. is very Western themed too. This Western culture spanned pretty much half the country. Like the Western half of the country was all influenced by that to one degree or another. Uh, and the lengths to which people went to get gold, too. I mean, it, the, the rush is one thing. People, again, they, they went out into very dangerous lands. Uh, some people went a very long-winded route. Uh, I remember learning, too, that to get to some places on the West Coast, people took boats down to Panama and then crossed Panama through uh, by train and then sailed all the way back up. You know, it was just... People were doing whatever they could to get out west, and this is this age, 1879, that the show takes place is definitely the peak of that time period. So the the historical context, I think, um, is not a hundred percent necessary to enjoy the show, but certainly enriches the experience. Now, and if I may add, like uh, if The Sopranos it marks the end of an era of the gangster life, uh, we're right in the thick of the cowboy life like there are the characters that you know um like there's like most of the main cast are historical figures yeah i find that so interesting because this the the book that that the creator milch uh was referencing primarily is a book about deadwood it was a real place that uh, was written about by a historian named watson parker and he his uh, main specialty was the history of the Black Hills, which Deadwood takes place in. So it clearly was a very um, enriching source material to draw uh, this the story from. So, uh, you know, in terms of the cast, too, I feel like this is a very high-octane cast. Oh, God. Lo- like, all, all fantastic character actors. Like, that's what another show where, like, everyone gets to be their, like, Everyone's, uh, you know, characters that are supporting actors in movies get to be the lead or just have a great role in this show. Like, we've seen them all. They're all that guy or that girl. Right. And I feel like to be in a Western has to be so exciting as an actor because there's just a, a, a world you can dive so deeply into. And you could really become a type of person who just doesn't exist anymore. You know, like the the town marshal, the saloon owner, uh, the the wild outlaw. These are not people that you run into anymore. These are long gone uh, archetypes. But in, in this world, they're just larger than life figures. You know, it's mythological. This is American mythology that we're seeing here. 
So, uh, I mean, the star of the show, Timothy Oliphant, you know, I, he's now a household name, I would say. He's known as the leading man. But I think this is a show that made him a leading man. I think prior to this, he was really in films here and there. And he did appear in an episode of Sex and the City. Uh, he, really? Who'd he date? He dated <laughs> Carrie, and he was a messy 20-something-year-old that she was dating. Like he, she, she stays over at his apartment, and then he has all these roommates, and it's a total mess. There's, you know, it, it's just a young man's sort of apartment that she is too old for. So that was his little uh, episodic relationship with Carrie Bradshaw. He's kind of good with for the Western genre. Like, he, I, he'll, of course, go on to lead a modern day western justified but even like when his like guest spot of the mandalorian he's the sheriff of the town <laughs> yeah he definitely commands authority in a way that you root for him i mean seeing him in this at least i'm like okay i buy that he's an authority figure he has bravado but he also has a little bit of vulnerability too it's a fine line and seeing him in this uh, i think he definitely owns the role and is up for that task uh, and then the other big powerhouse actor from this show, of course, is uh, Ian McShane, who, uh, oh, you know, a very one of the best, very seasoned actor who'd been around forever. And I, I'm not sure if this is his introduction to American audiences, but uh, you know, certainly we'd see him in a lot of other things afterwards. But uh, yeah, he's just he. I feel like he is a Shakespearean trained actor, right? He's from he he's uh, an Irish actor, correct? And or English, he's English, and he's an English actor, and he definitely, I have the sense that he's just classically trained, and that's why he disappears into these characters so well. And so, again, for a period piece like this, you, you want actors like him who are uh, so well-versed in all these different um, you know, historical ages uh, of characters. Well, the journey to find Al, it wasn't Ian right away, uh, and just... When I was doing the research, David Milch, right after NYPD Blue, he had a show called The Big Apple on CBS. And there's something that I find funny. A lot of these showrunners that we talked about, um, like Miss, Mitch Hurwitz, or like it, they've all had a, a show that's like only five episodes, maybe a couple unaired, and then they make it. Then they find that. He had a show called Big Apple. It was a cop show. Two episodes, two unaired. And one of the leads was Ed O'Neill. Modern family, married with children. And Ed right. O'Neill, he wanted Ed O'Neill to play Al Swearingen. And Wow. The that would have been so different. The network was like, uh, we kind of know him from family comedy. We really – we're going to have to say no to that. So next came Powers Booth, who is very – a great character actor, villainous. Um, I think just for Kasem, he was the head of the World Council in the Avengers just for a baseline. Um, but he got sick and he couldn't do it, but they liked him and they're like, he comes back as Cy Tolliver who becomes a, uh, in the third episode of the first season, he becomes a rival. He owns his own um, brothel. In the, oh, okay. in the show. So, you know, one door may close and another may open. But I'm so happy Ian McShane walked through that door because you're right. With that Shakespearean, he, with that Shakespearean trained actor, Al becomes like this Shakespearean 
like anti anti hero, but he's he's really just he's not even a, like he's just a bad guy. He's not a hero at all. I scratched that. Enough that they changed his historical. Uh, like Al, the real Al was born and raised in Chicago, but they added that little. Oh, he was born in England and raised in Chicago for Ian. Okay, I that that makes sense too for some of the plot involving a lot of the Irish laborers, right? And I, I do think Ian McShane is so good in this role. He almost becomes the face of the show more so than Timothy Oliphant. I think they they're almost equal in that regard. But for me, at least when I think of the show, I do think of Ian McShane because his performance, I think, embodies so many elements of this world that we're entering. And Timothy Oliphant is kind of someone who's trying to make the world better. And Ian McShane's character is someone who uh, represents what the world is as yes. it's introduced. Bad guys get to have all the fun. like, the, like yeah, That they do, Like yes. the guy who has to wear the badge has to be the hall monitor. Like Seth, Seth's a great character. And his where he goes in over the course of the series is fantastic. But Al Schwerigen just like and the and the dialogue, how many like it becomes a cocksucker. Like he just because like that, uh, the profanity in this show, it just becomes fun. You love seeing him. On I, I read actually I read that there was so much profanity in this show that it became controversial in a way. But it's HBO and it's the old West. Do you not expect them to curse? And honestly, I, I didn't find there to be so much cursing that it was abnormal i feel like that is just part of the territory here that's what i think uh, too what one of the i think the only other actor i'll mention for now is uh keith carradine uh if i'm pronouncing that correct and uh, i know him from dexter but obviously very seasoned actor has been a lot of stuff and i know that he's part of the famous carradine acting family so uh brothers to um David Carradine uh, and Robert Carradine. I know Robert from uh, Revenge of the Nerds, and I know David Carradine, uh, uh, R.E. from from Bill, uh, from Kill Bill. He was Bill and Kill Bill. Although again, there's been lots of other stuff before that. I think he's known for being a lot of kung fu movies. Uh, but just interesting. Whenever I see an actor from like a famous acting family, it's like Hollywood royalty in a way. But uh, I, I really enjoy him in this, although his look initially, yeah, he plays Wild Bill Hickok, and I find him to be a very interesting character, but initially his look, he has these, like, locks. Initially, I thought he looked like a musketeer or something. That's how the, uh, that's how uh, Hickok look, though. If you look up I, I, an I, old I, photo, man, like... Yeah, yeah. Um, but I believe it. Always but, nice to meet uh, another Keith. Uh, that's true, yes. Yeah, more, more representation for Keiths out there. Okay, so I think we've covered a lot here with the uh, pilot history, and we certainly have a very in-depth pilot to cover here, so I think we should get right into it. So it's March 21st now, 2004, joining on HBO. So now, Keith, you can take us to the pilot. Flight 527, runway 8 Kilo, you're cleared for takeoff. So we're going right into the opening credits, and we have a title song here by David Schwartz. Uh, it's that very classic, folksy, dark theme that fits with the setting, and you're twangy. getting a lot of, lot twangy. of 
yeah, twangy. Uh, we're getting a lot of classic Western imagery here. You know, wagons, horses, gunslinging. This is, but it's all in like a very dark filter, right? Kind of a colorless filter. And so I think that's kind of establishing, not only are we in a Western, but it's going to be like a dark Western. This is going to be a gritty Western. It's not going to be the overly colorful and kind of glamorized Western. This is going for authenticity uh, as, I mean, I would have predicted such, uh, you know, coming from HBO and their take on the genre. And it's amazing. I'm sure when Milch and his writing staff were doing the research and coming up with storylines, it's amazing how the history of Deadwood kind of attribute like it's it's kind of right there like where these characters go their journey it's i mean it's not all true but not like there was a smallpox outbreak that's a little that becomes a little bit of a plot line just the expansion and how Deadwood starts to become more civilized like it just kind of Sir, it was kind of a TV show in waiting, almost. Right. There's so much there. There's so much potential for a good story there. And I, I like that as a writer, uh, Milch has the opportunity to take liberties, right? This is a show, so it doesn't have to be 100% accurate about what these characters realize, where these are just inspirations for his versions of these real-life characters. And he also has the ability to tie in historical events to the story as he sees fit. Because uh, as we see, too... You know, Deadwood is uh, unincorporated, uh, but there's always talks of it be, being incorporated into the Dakota Territory there. So there's there's a backdrop there that is good for just um, adding more depth to the story. So here in the first scene, it is uh, Montana Territory, another little small encampment here. Uh, the year is 1876, the month of May. And... Um, <clears throat> We start out in this jail, the small jail where Marshall Seth Bullock is writing in his journal, and an inmate named Clell Watson is trying to bargain for his freedom. Basically, this guy here is in jail because he tried to steal a horse, and for which he's going to be executed. Can you believe that? You would be executed simply for stealing a horse and i don't really get a sense that this guy has had much due process for that matter but that's just where you are you steal a horse then you, you face the gallows and look what he's trying to bargain uh seth with he's like hey we're both going to deadwood like i know of some good uh you know we can do some thieving i know some good uh like uh, he knows some routes he knows yeah. he, he's he's just you know trying to do whatever he can to bargain his way uh two out scores. of here that's it i got two scores that's what yeah yeah and yeah he's also this clell watson guy he's talking about how amazing this deadwood place sounds a place of no law so much opportunity and here he is an idiot ruining his chances by stealing a horse uh and then we have an arrival of another character, Soul Star, who we learn is uh, Seth Bullock's business partner. Uh, he arrives to warn Bullock that a drunken mob has formed and is coming to the jail. It's being led by Byron Sampson, who it's his horse who was stolen. And him and his friends got drunk and they decide that they want to execute Watson himself. So uh, I, it's very early in the episode here. But I must sound 
a Seinfeld alert. Oh, wow. Okay. No, uh, this, I think I know who you're going to say and, and the episode why. I... Okay, well, here we go. This uh, Byron Sampson character is played by an actor named uh, Charles Vargas. And this actor was in the season five episode of Seinfeld, The Lip Reader. He played a private car driver who gets offended by Elaine when she pretends to be deaf in order to avoid having to make chit-chat. So just calling that out there. And for, for I guess, newer viewers, this Seinfeld alert, uh, it's just a fun thing that we do because Seinfeld was the first show that we covered on the podcast. And it's my favorite show. So whenever I see actors who are in that show at one point, I like to call them out. He's very good at it too. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, this is one of a few Seinfeld alerts. I got one. Very episode. I got okay. one. I got sure, one. Okay. Okay, you you do the next one, but uh, I I have at least two more in mind. Okay, I was excited when I saw it, and I'm like, I I and I said to myself, I know he's gonna see it, but if I could get to it beforehand. All uh, right, we'll see. We'll see who draws first. How about uh, yeah, that? True. <laughs> Appropriately enough. Okay, so Bullock emerges with Watson from the jail, and the crowd uh, is there. This drunken mob with Byron Sampson. They're demanding that they carry out justice, but. Bullock is telling them, hey, like, you called on the law. You can't call it off. And he sees that, you know, the Samson guy is not going to lay off. He, he's he's not going to wait until morning. So Bullock makes the call to execute Watson right there on the porch of the jail. And he ties up a noose, puts, um, puts Watson uh, on a stool and prepares to hang him. And, you know, it's kind of like astounding the crowd here like they can't believe what they're seeing but watson he's going along with it he's like well i'm gonna die anyway so uh, i'm not gonna give this uh byron Sampson guy the satisfaction so uh the last thing watson does is he leaves a message uh for his sister which bullock writes down and you know about how he loves his son and uh you know just uh, one last message and yeah, after after he's done with the message, he steps off the stool and Bullock helps with the hanging by yanking this guy and breaking his neck. Brutal. This actually happened too. Uh, this was taken from Bullock's diary. Oh, okay. Wow. This I mean, it's an interesting thing to do that he's going to be carrying out justice. I mean, in the context of the Old West. I, personally, I don't think that the punishment fits the crime. But uh, yeah, people get killed for much less in the Old West. Well, it's amazing how like a great setup scene of a character where, you know, uh, Clell tempts him with like, hey, you know, if you let me go, I know some roots that we could rob. Very easy money. Okay, Seth's not interested. Uh, And then when the mob comes, it's like, you're not going to kill this guy. Like I like this is my juris- jurisdiction here. I will not allow you to kill him, and I will do you the honor of getting word out to your sister. Like and and thankfully one of the men in the mob does say like, look the guy died. I will tell his sister. But like you see how just uh like on the alignment chart like he is like a good guy or tr- lawful, lawful good, good right yeah exactly. Yeah, he, he is going to try to maintain order in a fairly chaotic place. Not an easy thing to do, and you definitely have to have a lot of bravado to do so. So, yeah, a good um, good intro for this character here. 
that he's going to be uh, standing up for what he believes in. He believes in the law, and so he's going to stand up for it. Uh, so then after after that, after giving the message to one of the mob members, uh, Bullock and Star, they get in their wagon and they set off for Deadwood. Now, interesting that the opening credits already happened because if this was a cold open, which I feel like a lot of the prior HBO shows were structured with the cold open, then you'd have the opening credits and that would be effective as well. But uh, I, I get a sense that this show is more cinematic and so that's why you maybe have a more conventional opening credit scene to start the the episode with. Any more gunplay gets answered. You call the law in, Samson. You don't get to call it off just because you're liquored up and popular on payday. You don't get to tell us what to do and what not to do. Because you're leaving Montana anyways. Now do not jump off of that stool, you cocksucker. Or what? You'll kill me? All right, so now we fade to our next scene here. Uh, it's... Now July, a few months have passed. Uh, we're now in the Black Hills of North Dakota. Uh, we see a caravan heading towards Deadwood. Uh, and this includes uh, a few characters here. Wild Bill Hickok, who is uh, a famous outlaw, and his friends, which include uh, Calamity Jane and Charlie Utter. Seinfeld alert. Oh, really? I, I didn't get this one, but okay. Uh, uh, Charlie Utter? was and maybe because only i watched this episode maybe a couple weeks ago and i was like wait a minute i know this guy looks familiar uh puerto rican day parade he played the taxi cab guy for elaine wow okay that is a great call and uh a special props because the puerto rican day parade is one of the least watched episodes of all time uh because there was a little controversy with that episode and it wasn't really syndicated much so that's a good call and i actually wouldn't have gotten that one because I haven't seen that episode many times. So I, th- I got to thank my dad. He was watching it on Netflix. So and it is a funny episode. I but but it's uh no yeah he plays the cab uh, cab driver dealing with Elaine. Wow. Okay. Great call. Although uh, not one of the other two that I was thinking. That's of. funny. Like I was so worried. I'm like, oh no, he's gonna get this one. But that oh my god, and that just shows like how many actors. At one point, Christian Bell uh, pops up in this show for like a couple of episodes, and she like it's so odd seeing her not as Veronica Mars or Christian Bell. Like it's so right. bizarre. But this well, you know, a lot of first, actors come through Deadwood. <laughs> absolutely, it being such a big production, and they're really creating a world here. You are going to have to have a lot of one-time characters. You're going to bring in a lot of actors. And I'm sure a lot of character actors wanted an opportunity to be on the show too because, again, there's such a great uh, opportunity to play in like just the kinds of characters you don't normally get in other projects. But, yeah, you uh, you get a sense like Wild Bill is a celebrity. Like, hey, you guys are keeping up uh, Wild Bill. Like, like the – like. There's something like there is that lore, that that mythos that like this that like, oh, my God, Wild Bill. Right. He has his reputation. And as we'll learn later, it's been rumored that he's on his way to town here. Uh, But you also get a sense in this first scene. He's laying in this wagon and he has his hat over his head that, you know, he's a little older and maybe he's not at his peak. Right. I mean, fastest gunslinger in the West, but we'll see if he's still up for matching that reputation and he's traveling with calamity jane who is 
loud and boisterous. <laughs> yes, yes. She's like a guy's girl, if there ever was one. And then Charlie Utter, who's kind of like his manager in a way, right? If he's the star, then this Charlie Utter guy is the one just doing his business for him. Exactly. Uh, and then, uh, meanwhile, in, in Deadwood, we're going now into the town. Or it's, it's really – it's called a camp, right? Deadwood is now a camp. It's not really a town per se because it's still getting set up. There's not really a lot of infrastructure. And I think also the word town implies – more of an incorporation to the the higher levels of government, right? Because this is, as a lawless place, that I think the implication is it's unincorporated. Bullock and Star arrive into Deadwood, and they're going to start their hardware store. They have all their supplies there in their wagon. And we're getting a little montage here of people setting up this settlement. We're, we're seeing... Uh, you know, different stores being set up. We're seeing different saloons. Uh, it's it's a fairly chaotic place because, yeah, it's it's so new. And this is kind of what we were alluding to before with Milch's mission is to tell a story of order forming from chaos. And certainly it's more chaotic than, than orderly. The thing that I found interesting is that this same set would be later used in Westworld and Django Unchained. You know, I I did think it looked similar to Westworld, uh, and you know, like why why have why build a, a whole new Western set? I imagine that if this was a new set, then they would it would be preserved for future Western projects. So uh, now in the next scene here, we're going to the Gem Saloon, and this is where we are meeting Al Swear Swearigen. And he is taking gold from a local prospector. And this first exchange I find kind of funny. Al is like doing very fast math. He he's taking gold from a prospector in exchange for credits at the saloon. And he's going on and on about like, all right, well, you got eight and a half ounces here at, at sixteen dollars an ounce, da da da. Like he's he's talking so fast. This is his business. You can tell he's a very business savvy guy. Oh and he has yeah. his he has his employees as well who report to him. And get things set up, right? Like, for example, uh, Bullock and Star, they're going to be renting a tent from Al, but not directly. They're going to go through one of his subordinates. Uh, so as Al is in his saloon, uh, we hear a gunshot coming from the upstairs. And uh, in, in a room upstairs, we see that a prostitute named Trixie has shot a customer for abusing her. And so Al and, and his uh, his employees, they're, they're arriving. They're trying to figure out what happened. And this is a, kind of a disturbing scene here because this customer who was shot, he's shot in the head. And he's he's delirious, but he's still alive for the time being. Uh, they get the doc to come in, this guy, Doc Cochran, uh, who is played, played by the great bad Brad Dorf. Brad Dorf, who I know mostly from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Again, he's been in a lot of stuff, but I think that's maybe one of his more he's iconic. He's the voice of Chucky. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's interesting. But he's he's very good in this. He disappears into this role. Uh, but yeah, like this this guy, he's he's still alive despite having a hole in his head. It, it's uh, kind of disturbing. It should, we should say that like it's not like straight into the head. It looks like it's from uh, like right above, like from temple to temple, like right in yes. front of the brain. Like yeah, it went through the front of his brain. So I guess he still has some neurological activity going on. But again, like he, he's he's going to be a goner in just a second. But the fact that he's still able to to uh, 
be alive and be somewhat cognizant is kind of astounding. Yeah, Doc is curious. He's like, how? Like, this guy's been alive for 20 minutes, and he's just – like oh we a great we get this. he's a great doctor but he's like I'm sure if you were a doctor at that time period you were just you were very curious about like how everything works. Well, right, because this is not just the industrial revolution. This is also an age of scientific advancements, and that includes with uh, you know anatomy and medicine. And uh, I'm sure this guy is as curious as anybody. Although as a doctor in this town, he I'm sure he also has his hands full. I mean, oh yeah, yeah, he's very busy. If you're in the medical profession in the Old West, uh, and we get this crazy shot a- after this customer dies from his wound, that kind of sticks this instrument through his head. It's like, wow, how did they film that? Because it really looks like he's sticking this thing through this guy through the the hole in his head, uh, to the disgust of some of Al's employees. Uh, and who are some of these guys? Their names are uh, we got a guy named Dan Doherty, Dan uh, guy- Dale Doherty. Dale Doherty, oh, who is W. Earl Brown, and he – you might know him uh, – I, I, uh, what's that movie? There's something about Mary. He played uh, Cameron Diaz's brother, and he was Right, right. Franks and Beans. Franks yeah. and Beans. Uh, and uh, he was the cameraman in Scream. You got Johnny uh, Johnny Burns uh, – or Johnny Brass, I think. I think I wrote it wrong. Uh, Burns. It's Johnny, Johnny Burns, Burns, and it is – it is Dan Doherty as well, and, by the way. Oh, my bad. Uh, and Shame on you. I, and Johnny would go on to be in a show called Rectify. Uh, who, oh, okay. And there's another actor in here who ended up being the showrunner on Rectify, but we haven't gotten to him yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's very uh, – it's just it, – it's kind of just – it's like a web of uh, – I'm sure this show gets used a lot in Six Degrees of – separation from kevin bacon like that's how- yeah you know there's there's so many actors involved right yeah. like of course yeah especially actors as character actors the appearance and so trixie many other is uh, paula malcolmson from uh ray donovan right right yeah uh so you know i also want to point out too in this scene it's very tense and it feels very real but there's also some very interesting lighting i i've the, the, not the kind of lighting you see in a lot of other shows or movies it's just it's very deliberate. There's a lot of focus on the eyes, like the way the lighting is drawing attention to the characters' faces. It's framing it in a very distinct way, in a way that I feel like is very fitting to the Western genre. And that's why I think this does feel more cinematic than every, anything else. It's just, it's it's a very stylized direction that gets us more sucked into this world. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, I didn't. I didn't pick up on that. I knew it, like. I was very happy that this episode, and he was a producer, this uh, first episode was directed by Walter Hill. Now, Walter Hill directed The Warriors, 48 Hours, um, Streets of Fire, like he, and he loves Westerns. He kind of says, I direct everything like a Western. So it was like about time for him to do like Deadwood, and he won the Emmy. It was nominated for writing, but he did win the Emmy for directing this. So I think everything that you say about it is why. Well, you know, it's so funny because like him and uh, Milch, you know, they they have a lot of prior experience with more contemporary crime. But in a way, then they were inspired by old Westerns, but taking those themes to more modern settings for their times, uh, you know, 70s and 80s and 90s. And uh, now they're just kind of doing maybe what they always just want to do in the first place. So you can tell this is almost like a passion project. It Uh, does feel that way. And, um, you know, it's. I'm happy, like, one uh, to go back to the theme of just like 
something nothing out of or something out of nothing out of chaos and okay you can't get rome but deadwood it's like staring you in the face was the perfect spot for this yeah i know i agree i mean that's just kind of how all societies came together right is just out of chaos and you could argue that the old west is one of the more recent examples of that uh so yeah doc is going to agree to help get rid of this body and he's going to get uh, free alcohol on exchange. It, it feel like, you know, Al, he, he's very quick to offer people like free booze or, you know, like half off, uh, you know, uh, sleeping with a prostitute or something. Because he kind of knows that controlling people is where the true power lies in this town. Uh, so in the next scene here, uh, Hickok and Utter, they decide to leave the caravan and head to, into town while Jane... Is going to stay behind and uh, you know help get things back on track. And um, we get a shot here of uh, this family going back to Minnesota. Uh, Minnesota. We're, it's we're a, heading back like, to Minnesota. It's this uh, Norwegian family. This is very like an important plot point here. Uh, and we see that it's like a family with a few kids. So uh, Jane waves to them. Hope, <laughs> I hope things go well for them on the way back to Minnesota. So uh, now back in town, Bullock and Star, they're getting harassed by uh, a, a character who is credited as um, a loud wagoneer. <laughs> and this is where I will sound my next Seinfeld alert. This, I love it. Mike Haggerty. Mike Haggerty. You recognize this guy. Another actor who's been in a ton of stuff. and he only R.I.P. R.I.P. Yes, yes. And he, he only has a small role in this. But he did appear in the season five episode of Seinfeld in the raincoats. He played Rudy, who owns a secondhand clothing store. Uh, but again, a face that, you know, if you look up his IMDb, tons of recognizable titles. I always loved him as the uh, the super in Friends. Like, yes, that's, that's always right. like. Always good for a laugh with that. He's a very grouchy guy, right? He has the face for that. Uh, and I like that star here. You know, you can tell that he's the more diplomatic of the the pair here. And he offers this loud wagon here, um, like a free, uh, I don't know, a free pot or something in exchange for leaving them alone. Like, you know, sorry for the a, trouble. A Here's a free pot. He gives him a, a commode. commode. That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Here's a free commode for the inconvenience. And, you know, it's good business, right? Yeah. Like, you know, obviously, you don't want people getting mad at you if you're going to be starting a store in town you want people to like you and give you their business so uh now we go back to the saloon here in the next scene trixie is telling her story to al like you know the guy he was going on about how he lost all his money he was going to go back east da, da, da. al doesn't care he's like you know what that means nothing to me get to the part where you shot him and she says well yeah he woke up and accused me of stealing his money started to beat me I, I had to defend myself, so that's when she shot him. And, you know, Al, he's very unsympathetic to Trixie, to put it lightly. No. Because for him, it's bad business to have someone killed in his saloon by one of his prostitutes. And that's why he has to cover this up. And so he is going to punish Trixie by throwing her against the wall, throwing her to the ground, and stepping on her throat until she agrees to behave herself. And it's it's a hard scene to watch, I would say. And, you know, I believe it for the time that these women are being abused. That's that's part of the authenticity 
of the setting is getting some very hard to watch scenes here. And uh, this is definitely a character who you can tell is going to be uh, going through the ringer here. It's it's not a very kind place for women. No, we talk about how like, you know, Al is a fun character like to probably write for and he's very thematic uh, uh, dramatic but he is also theatrical theatrical thank you Uh, but he's also a bad guy like he oh yeah he's terrible like he's a bad guy and uh, but yeah no he has like this is his way of making sure that Trixie it's like do you understand right I mean he's a very interesting character because he's very intelligent but he has no scruples about either abusing people or killing people who get in his way and that's why this goes back to he is enigmatic of this world. And uh, that's why he's a good focal point for the story, at least at the beginning. Here to prospect, Mr. Hickok, or on other business? I'm here to get a room. Uh, could we get two? We're uh, worn out looking at each other. Separate rooms. I'll arrange that by tomorrow, but today I can't fix it. Unless you kill a guest. <laughs> So now we get to a scene here at the uh, Grand Central Hotel. Uh, Haycock and Utter, they go to the uh, the innkeeper here. There's a character named E.B. Farnham. Another, and... like, real-life guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, right? It's like, amazing how people. he's, like, portrayed as, like, this, uh, like, excuse me, sir, like, I have my clammy hands, like. Yeah, yeah, he's a nervous, bookish type, right? And uh, a character like this can only survive if he's working under a more powerful person like Al. Uh, so yeah, he's kind of trying to be nice to Hickok and utter like, Oh, what are you guys doing in town? He's trying to make small talk. They're not having it. They just want to get a couple of rooms, but there are none available until the next day. Uh, so, and then we cut right away to Farnham, uh, reporting to Al about Hickok's arrival. And Al's not too happy about this. You know, this is kind of a complication here. I don't think Al's particularly threatened by Hickok, but to have, uh, this outlaw in town to draw attention to the town. You know, that just kind of complicates things. And you know that Al is now, the, we can tell that Al is the guy who wants things to go as smoothly as possible. And, you know, having Hickok come in here, just, you know, he doesn't know exactly what kind of obstacles this will bring, but it will bring some. It, I understood it to be as like, Hickok will attract attention. That could attract the U.S. government. This right, is, this is right. an area that is doing fine without any form of government yeah exactly he wants there to be as little attention on deadwood as possible because yeah as is he's doing very well al he doesn't want anything to change he doesn't want uh any anything changing the status quo so you know al uh then is notified by dan doherty about the arrival of a man from new york named brom garrett's and we now are getting a, a setup here. Al has a little scheme in mind for this Brom Garrett. And he's uh, telling his uh, he's telling Farnham to go fetch a prospector named Ta- Tim Driscoll. So we're going to see exactly how this plays out later and on. And ignore Brom on the way out. Like everything, everything is yeah. important to the act. Right, yeah. He, he, Al's very calculating. He knows how to con people, and it's a long con. You know, He knows how to mess with certain people, especially naive people that will discover this Brom Garrett is definitely um, a stooge. So in the, the next scene here, it's now nighttime, and uh, Bullock and Star, they're going to announce the opening of their store. 
They come out of their tent, and there's a crowd of people in, in the, the settlement here. And, you know, Bullock tries to get things going. You know, he's like, hey, we got some things here. But he's a little quiet. He seems a little nervous. He, Star even has to tell him to uh, close his fly. It, Star is the one a little more prepared, a little more confident, and, you know, gets the, the crowd's attention about, you know, what their store is all about, the deals they have. And, uh, you know, Bullock warms up to that. And also he gets better. To, yeah, he gets exactly. Better. He gets the hang of it. You know, Star has to kick things off, but then Bullock, you know, he he's able. To, he he needs Star basically uh, to uh, you know, uh, get him ready for this part because you can tell he's he's not shy, but yeah, you know, he it's a different role for him. Yeah, you know, he's been a marshal, and being a salesperson is a whole different role for him. Uh, but there's an interesting uh, moment in the scene here. Uh, we have a guy in the crowd sort of distracting people. He's like, oh, look at this, this other vendor. I bought some soap from and there was a prize inside. Oh, like, oh, where'd you get that soap from? And Bullock immediately knows that this guy is just playing a part. Like, this is the competitor trying to take away customers. So he goes up to this guy and says, stay away from this tent. Play your game somewhere else. And this is actually a, a pretty interesting dynamic you know star is more of the salesman but bullock is the muscle and he's going to keep things straight and uh scare off people who are going to try to uh, steal away their comp uh, their customers and i i find that interesting too there's a lot of a lot of deception in this world right like everyone is after something and trying to get theirs and these guys bullock and star they're trying to do it honestly but there's a lot of people who are trying to do that dishonestly, playing games and tricks. And Bullock sees through all of that very clearly. And that's a, a, definitely a skill you need to have if you're going to play things on the straight and narrow. Well, I, I think you kind of said it perfectly. Like He's able to read people very well. And he there's a sense of just like he commands respect very quickly. Like take your take your game somewhere else, and maybe it's the mustache, and it's an excellent yeah. mustache. But it's just like, well, he's a gaze you can, too. You I can think take the like... marshal out of Montana. Like you can take the marshal, uh, like he doesn't. He may not be a marshal, but you can't take that kind of attitude from him. Right. Those skills will still be useful to him, and I think there's something in his eyes too. Like he gets oh, very yeah. serious. He kind of like like leans into a person when he's staring them down and cutting through their bull crap. So I, I, I like that there is a form of intimidation that is very effective. Uh, so now at the next scene here, we're back at the gem saloon. It's very busy. Al meets with Brom Gerritz and this will be my final Seinfeld alert. <laughs> oh, last one. I have to limit myself to three. Uh, Brom. Is it Brom? Brom Gerritz is played by an actor named Tim Odmitson. He was in the season four episode of Seinfeld, The Cheever Letters. He played Rick Ross, brother to Susan Ross, in a scene where they discover their father has had a homosexual affair oh my with God. the author John Cheever. Yes, he's just in that one scene. But I recognize his eyes. I feel like he's very distinct eyes. Uh, and so, um, yeah, just one last call out. My final Seinfeld That's alert amazing. of He must have episode. been a young boy in that. Oh, yeah. You know what's so funny in that, too? He looks like he could be uh, Chandler's cousin or something in that Seinfeld appearance. The same haircut. Uh, in, like, it's like 1992 or something. Because I think like a lot of like a lot of his fame came from Psych. 
Like he played, he was part of that crew. And I think recently he like, he had a really bad stroke, but he kind of came back and that became an arc uh, on this is us. Okay. Like he, I, he's I did, had I didn't quite, know that. The, quite the career, but like I was watching Deadwood going like, who, where have I seen this? Like, uh, granted, that's a lot of characters in Deadwood. Like I, with Calamity Jane, I was like, where have I seen her before? Robin Reich, Reingard, Gert, like she was uh, the psychiatrist and Carrie Ann Moss's uh, lover in Jessica Jones. Like she's, I, like she's been around. Of course, we know John Hawks as well. Like John Hawks playing Soul Star. Like he's right, now yeah. on, he's now on the this season this current season of True Detective and he plays such an asshole, <laughs> right? But you know True Detective is another very influenced by westerns, right? So uh, that that all adds up. But right? that's it like twenty back. years. That, that's such a twenty year gap. It's a it's it's funny. Um, but yeah, but you know what? I'm sure once once you've played uh, a character in an authentic western, that can translate into so many other things. Okay, so. Now we have uh, this scene, like I was saying before the Seinfeld alert. Uh, Al meets with Brom Garrett, and yeah, there, there's a sense where Al does not really respect Brom behind his back and kind of to his face too. He kind of mocks him in a way, like, "Oh, Bill, um, you know, uh, Bill Hickok's in town. Oh, did that give you the vapors?" You know, there's some insinuation there. Uh, but the main part of this conversation here is Al warning Brom that he may have lost out on buying Tim Driscoll's gold claim. And he's he's uh, get playing into this con here. He's adding a bit of urgency where Brom needs to uh, meet up with this Tim Driscoll character and and buy the gold claim before it's too late. And we'll discover later on that this is all a ruse, really, uh, for Al to get some of Brom's money. I just found it uh, like I like Brom comes off to me like a, a like green fresh off like. Just like, oh, I want to make some gold, Mister. I'm from I'm from New York City. He's from the gold gilded age. Like he doesn't know anything about the West. Look at the way he dresses. Right. Like he is well naive. He sips he sips his whiskey, right? He doesn't yes. down it like everyone else does. Uh, he comes from privilege. He makes a comment later about having to get more money from his parents, uh, and so there is uh, like it's nothing. It is a naive. Uh, he's a very naive, but he has a lot of money. And so that makes him the perfect target for a guy like Al. So uh, we also get one last moment here. Tim Driscoll does arrive at the saloon very, very drunk. And uh, this will just play into the more of the con that's coming up. Uh, so now at the next scene here, we're going to another saloon, the number 10 saloon. Uh, Hickok and Utter enter this place. And they're immediately recognized by the owner, a guy named Tom Nuttall, and the newspaper editor... Uh, A.W. Merrick, played by Jeffrey Jones. Hickok tells Merrick, who's the, uh, again, the town editor, he wants to know, like, oh, give me readers a, a story here. And uh, Hickok is saying he left Cheyenne because of a warrant uh, for him. And uh, we also get a quick little scene, uh, a moment here, where another another patron, a guy named Jack. Jack McCall. Jack McCall. He's eyeing this Hickok and saying he's not too impressed. So it's interesting. This reputation for Hickok, it impresses some, and it kind of makes him a target for others. Uh, that's, so, that's a really good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? It's like there's there's good and bad when it comes to having a reputation in the West. Uh, and uh, just there's a quick scene that happens a little later. Hickok decides to play poker and sits at a table. And then while that's happening, Utter negotiates with Nuttall, 
uh, an appearance fee. He says, hey, you know, uh, it, if you want, I can have Hickok come here every single night exclusively, won't go to any other saloon, and just in exchange, pay us uh, $50 a night. Because, you know, I mean, Utter is interesting. He's saying that he, he he's doing this to help Hickok uh, establish you know, a, a future, a savings, but I, 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 you can't trust anybody. I, I can't imagine anyone being that selfless. He wants to pay himself, I think, first and foremost. But while Bill is a, uh, has a gambling problem. <laughs> yes, he has a gambling problem, and apparently he's not very good at gambling. He loses a lot of money. So now at the uh, next scene here, back at the gem saloon, uh, we get the rest of this con involving Garrett and Driscoll. Uh, Al is playing mediator here. And you know, he's he's basically convincing Garrett to buy Driscoll's gold claim for fourteen thousand dollars, and they spit in their hands and shake on it. Uh, but then Farnham enters, and he's pretending to want in on this gold claim and upping the offer to sixteen thousand. And I imagine that this is actually not exactly how Al. Uh, plan this right he wanted Farnham to come in just to add more urgency to Driscoll but this actually leads to Driscoll uh, pretending to go with Farnham's bid and so Garrett is going to up his to 20,000 and that's a little too much you know like Al wants to con Garrett but he doesn't want to just take all his money right away he's playing a long game and this breakdown in the con is going to mess that up for him in a bit. He, he doesn't like how this plays out. And Driscoll is getting a little greedy here uh, to you know, force Garrett to up his bid to 20000 The first time that I watched this years ago, you know, I kind of just let it wash over me, but I did understand it a little bit better. It's all like... Like you said, Al's playing the long game. He, do, he, do, he doesn't want to fleece all of Brahm at once. But Driscoll, as we'll find out, is doing is getting a little greedy for a reason. Right, right. And also, being very, very drunk, he's not thinking very clearly either. Very true. Now, uh, before we go any further, for our older viewers, I didn't think you would ever hear that the facts of life has something to do with Deadwood. But there is a scene uh, during all this where Trixie needs another gun. Yes, yes. Sorry, I missed that. Yeah, so, so she, she, she asks, who is it that she asks? Jewel. She, Jewel is kind of um, like the – like she has a cerebral palsy, and she's kind of – or as Al would call her, the gimp. And, just, and Al is not he, – he, he's not nice to anybody. But uh, He would get canceled so quickly. Exactly. But uh, Jewel is basically kind of like the janitor, like the cleanup, the, the housekeeping – and played by Jerry Jewell, uh, cousin Jerry from Facts of Life, like the, the a stand-up comedian. She's still around, um, but yeah, no, it's uh, she asked Jerry for a gun. Like Jerry, Jerry kind of knows. Uh, Jewel kind of knows where to get her hands on some things. Yeah, yeah, and I get a sense that she's a character who will be uh, underestimated. Very much so. But yeah, that's um, a key moment there too. Trixie gets another gun. To protect yourself, which fair enough. I mean, yeah, who knows if she's going to get another violent customer later on, even though Al doesn't want her to, to be armed. She has to look out for herself. In this environment, it's good to be armed. <laughs> right, right. And then, um, you know, after too, there's um, after that scene with Garrett, he, he you see him later on going to his wife, Alma, played by Molly Parker, 
and he's excited about the gold claim. He's he's bragging to her like, yes, we did it. We did it. We're going to have all this gold now. We're going to make it out here. Uh, I might have spent a little too much. Uh, my, my parents won't like that, but I might have to ask them for more money. <laughs> um, and Alma, yeah, she seems not as enthusiastic about it or with Garrett in general. Uh, but from what I understand, you know, Molly Parker is very highly billed. And so even though Alma doesn't have that much of a presence in the pilot, I do get a sense that she's going to be more integral to the story as it goes on. Alma is a great character, and I think just watching it now, I you're you're 100 right. She like yeah, Braun is play, uh, is playing himself like oh rich kid. I'll make that. I'll just have to. Daddy will give me the money, and she's kind of enthusiastic with him. There's really no connection there. She kind of if she could guess it like something like this guy's been conned out of some money, but I noticed, uh, I never really inquired in the beginning when I first watched it, that she puts a, something in her drink. Right. It seems like she's putting in, um, something from a vial. And, uh, what, what did people sell back then in vials? They would sell elixirs, right? It's like some sort of elixir that she's putting in. I'm not sure if this is like a drug. It's Louderman or land. Landerman, which is a tincture of opium, an extract. Oh, and that okay. makes so much sense on on her behavior and her headaches and her just overall just lack of. Well, also considering the age too, late 19th century, also the peak of opium, right? Yes. So uh, that also makes a lot of sense. Again, the, the historical context, it not 100% necessary, but it helps. So... Uh, now we have a very quick scene that I find very disturbing in which Doc Cochran and Johnny are getting rid of the, the dead customer, the one that Trixie killed. Uh, they give the body to a Chinese farmer who proceeds- Mr. Wu. Mr. Mr. Wu, who feeds the body to his pigs. And I have never heard of this before, of a body being disposed by being fed to pigs. I had no idea that pigs ate human flesh, number one. That alone is disturbing. But you also get a shot here, of, uh, like a quick shot of the pigs starting to eat at the body. And uh, it was implied before that they were going to do this, but seeing it just, that's unreal. That is something that happened. I believe this is a real thing that yeah, happened it is. back in the day. But man, that is brutal. I know the guy's dead, but my God, that is... Uh, that that shook me. That stuck with me for sure. No, it like not only Deadwood, but like this era doesn't owe anybody. Like it like for Al, this guy was an inconvenience. So and you'll find out over over the course of the show that they're like you know the Chinese have their own group, but Mister Wu, being the head, deals with Al. Like and uh, okay like it, it's a it's a business relationship but yeah no like you know i'm based on favors and all that and uh for sure yeah and yeah no it's like if, it's not if you want to make someone disappear it's just like okay he this guy was never here i don't know who you're talking about we've never seen him right right and i like what you said about this era not owing anybody anything because i think quite often the western is idealized yes and thought of as you know, part of American heritage, but that's not necessarily a great thing. Uh, and so I think to to show the brutality of the Old West, it definitely makes for a compelling drama. 
But at the same time, it's, it's a stark reminder that maybe we shouldn't be idealizing this period so much. It makes for great stories, but we shouldn't be wishing necessarily that we had lived in this time because it, it just it wasn't a great time. Yeah. No, so, I, the best Westerns yeah. and movies tend to be more, uh, you know, just ask those kind of like present the moral gray area of everything. And you'll see no, exactly like, this whole area. Deadwood is moral gray. And I just want to just tie back to a previous show we discussed, you know, um, in The Sopranos. Tony Soprano thinks about Gary Cooper, the strong silent type, right? Just another example of uh, there's a more contemporary character being nostalgic about this bygone time that sure reeks of masculinity, but in the worst possible way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so in this next scene here, um, Al is giving Tim Driscoll a hard time about how the, the Garrett con went, you know, for upping the bid to 20,000. And it turns out that Al is going to get pretty much all of that money because Driscoll owes Al and, all Driscoll's going to see from this is $500, and that's going to go towards credit, towards the saloon. So it really all goes <laughs> He gets down. all of it. <laughs> he gets all of it. And only the only thing Tim is going to get is like $20, really. Like Tim just wants some cash to hold in his hand, and uh, you know, Al doesn't really give that to him. So that that's so interesting. And Al is really the one in control the whole time, and he really has his sights set on draining – uh, this Garrett character for all, for all he's worth, but again, it's a long game, not not a short term thing. And you gotta love Eb. Like, did you see how? Did you see what I did over there, Al? Like, you know, he tried to go this way, and I, he's kind of like Butters. Uh, yeah, yeah. He he's like really um, trying to show Al. Look, I did a good job, didn't I? It, it's it's kind of pathetic, really. Uh, but it's it's I believe it, right? Like Al's such a powerful guy. I can imagine his employees trying to. Uh, impress him even if it's in a sort of saddy even if it's in a sort of sad sap way uh so uh next uh we're going to be going back to bullock and star's store uh we meet the reverend smith who wants to learn a little bit more about these two and here's where we get a bit more of their uh their background you know bullock was born in canada star was born in uh, austria which is uh, unexpected but they met in the Midwest, and uh, they decide to become partners. I would have been interested to see how that would have how that would have worked. I guess they just saw that they just really fit each other's needs. Like I was saying before, you know, Star is the better people person, and Bullock is really good muscle. But they both have a very strong conviction for honesty and and an order and, and lawfulness. Reverend's a good guy, but I he's an odd duck. He's yeah, he's kind of awkward, right? I mean, he makes some well-intentioned comments, but he he kind of comes off as a little creepy. <laughs> not not threatening, but it's just, you know, he's smiling, he's trying to be friendly, but he's just a little awkward. Odd duck is the best way to like uh the actor Ray McKinnon, he uh, he's the the showrunner of the show Rectify and oh, okay. I would say the past couple of years I started to I guess he wanted to I started just to notice him more ever since I saw Deadwood. Like I saw him in Ford v Ferrari. I've like it's just always. Uh, but he ended up going to. Oh, I think the show was on Sundance, and it's uh, uh, it it it's like one of those critically acclaimed show that no one watched apparently. 
But well, if it's on the Sundance Channel, yeah, that's that's unfortunate. But yeah, no, I, not creepy, but odd duckish. That's the way I would describe yep. him. Right, right. Um, and I mean, he's a nice guy. He's going to agree to watch the store yeah. as Bullock and Star explore a little bit more of of the camp here. And uh, as soon as they step out, they meet a man named Mason. He's a very seedy looking guy. And he is telling them like uh, that he saw a family get slaughtered on the Spearfish Road. And he, he's telling the story. He saw them. And the way he's telling it, though, it's very suspicious to Bullock. He, he's not believing the whole story about how this Mason guy just went past them, just was a witness. Right. He, he has a suspicion that this Mason guy was maybe a little more involved that he's letting on. And thank God uh, Reverend Smith was there because he knew the family. He's like, you know, oh, praise God. Like, let's. But he's like, oh, they had a, a third child. And, That's right. That's and right. Mason's, Mason's like, says, uh, I don't know. Like, it looked pretty bad. Right, right. Mason's saying, like, the two kids died. It's like, wait, there was the third one. And uh, another, another red flag going off in Bullock's mind. Uh, so now we go back to the number 10 saloon. Hickok loses a hand to Jack. It's kind of messing with him a little bit. And you can tell that there's maybe a little bit of an adversarial relationship forming here. You know, more so from Jackson. I think Hickok doesn't really care much about Jack either way. Uh, and then but you he's, have... not happy. he's not happy to lose to him. <laughs> no, no, he's not. But I feel like he has a very calm demeanor. Like, he's not happy to lose, but he's not necessarily threatened either. Uh, so Merrick, the editor, uh, he is going on here speculating about how he thinks Deadwood will eventually be incorporated into the North Dakota territory and the the hopes of the lawless life will be taken away from the people there in Deadwood not for a while <laughs> right right like history for... will show until 1889 okay yeah that's a, that's a long time to go lawless uh so Bullock uh it we go back to him and he's uh pressing Mason to tell the camp about the massacred family. They go into the number 10 saloon and Mason is saying like, you know, he just wants to drink. He doesn't want to go back out there. And they're, they're making a kind of a fuss here. It's grabbing the attention of the rest of the saloon. And, uh, you know, Bullock and star, they're telling everyone, yeah, there, there was a massacred family out there. And Hickok, he, he kind of stands up and he takes initiative here and he's ordering Mason to lead a group to the site. You know, like, show us where this was. And uh, I, I like that as they're starting to head out, you know, Hickok and Bullock, they, this is their first interaction together, and they both agree that they don't believe Mason's story completely. Now, something like this, this is like uh, something like Indians attacking a family could, especially with the tensions uh, the settlers had with the Indians at the time, that, that could just make a lot of people angry. Right, definitely a lot of tension. However, as we'll find out, uh, that that tension could also be used as a scapegoat, as a cover for some other uh, some some other criminal activity, and so that's that's unfortunate. So, back at the uh, the Gem Saloon, uh, you know, Al is worrying about whether he'll be able to con Garrett more in the future. And uh, suddenly, but uh, Al's employees come up, you know, Johnny and uh, this other guy, they, they go up to Al and they say, like, you know, a posse's forming to find this murdered family. And Al gets really mad. He strikes Johnny 
and is uh, yelling about how this is going to ruin his business for the night. People are not going to be staying and drinking. They're going to be riding they're off. They're going to be sad. Or they're going to be sad, not drinking. They're not going to be having sex. Right, right. This is going to uh, mess with his business. That's his main priority is maintaining his business and his income here, keeping people at the saloon. And it's interesting here. So um, yeah, Al will go downstairs and make a speech about, you know, it's it's my opinion that we – don't go out until tomorrow. We should make a plan. And until then, uh, next round is free. And uh, the women here are, are half off. You know, he's he's making like a speech like he cares. He's convincing to them, right? It's he's, he he's, he's like, let's pray for the family. Moment of silence. like Right, right. He seems to care. But then he undercuts that with more business speak. Yeah, like moment of silence for the family. And pussy's half off. You know, he's, that's, that's a quote from him. And it's funny in a dark way. But it's really, it's just really great character work. You know, here's the guy who can really work the people. You know, he's uh, a businessman and a salesman through and through. He has no scruples. And starting tomorrow morning, I will offer a personal $50 bounty for every decapitated head of as many of these godless heathen cocksuckers as anyone can bring in tomorrow with no upper limit. That's all I say on that subject. Sickness rounds on the house. <laughs> Rest the souls of that poor family. Amen. Amen. And pussy's half price. Next fifteen minutes. Uh, you know, Hickok and Bullock right off uh, as Al is making the speech, uh, and then as soon as they leave, uh, Calamity Jane arrives, and she goes into the gem saloon looking for Hickok, but then she hears word of of the murdered family, and she she yells at some of the patrons there about how they're not doing anything about it. And then she heads off as well. Yeah, she and she. You, I like I like her she, reaction. Like, what's the fucking rush? <laughs> like, she is really going to give these guys a hard time. Very foul mouthed, and uh, not necessarily the the ladylike character. I you know, like the line. It's like, oh, I didn't think I'd have the biggest balls in this place. Like, yeah, yeah. I think the guys in this bar they kind of think that's funny. You know, I think. It's it's interesting when you, when you talk like that and you maybe insult people in in these Western settings. If they're drunk enough, they might find it funny, or they might get mad and shoot you. It's it's a very risky thing to do. That. Unfortunately for Calamity Jane, I think just because of how she's done up and like you know she's she, she's like the actress is very beautiful, but they really don't. The Calamity Jane is very. Uh, Plus she's gruff. Gruff, thank you. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, she's she's you know she she looks like a, one of the other cowboys, right? Like she's, she is an alcoholic. It feels like they're kind of laughing at her. And the fact that like oh she's able yeah. to say these lines that are kind of like funny just adds to it. Right, right. But I I can imagine uh, that maybe you run into the wrong person, a guy who doesn't want to be spoken to, especially by a woman that way. Uh, yeah, that again, that could be dangerous. Although I'm sure that she also has a reputation. So uh, now we're going to be uh, going onto the Spearfish Road. Oh, sorry. One last thing here with this scene at Gem Saloon. Um, Al is speculating that the murder of this family was staged to make it look like they were killed by the Sioux. Uh, so he's very smart. He sees through other people's cons. He's not going to do anything about it. He's not going to really tell anyone outside of his circle if the, if it doesn't benefit him directly to do so. Uh, and he also tells uh, Doherty to, to kill Tim Driscoll. He's very, 
very cavalier about it. It's like, by the way, go kill that guy. Well, only because, like, not only did you mess up my con, but you're probably going to mess up anything else. Like, you are a danger. Doesn't trust him. Like, you are yeah. just a danger. Right, right, exactly. He's He he doesn't trust him to um, not ruin other cons for him in the future. So now on the Spearfish Road, the posse, they locate the murder family. It is that Minnesotan family, unfortunately, uh, the, the Norwegian family. Uh, but Bullock finds a young girl who is still alive. He has to chase off a couple of wolves. And it's a very you know, dramatic scene here. It's, it's brutal the way this family was massacred. You know, it's, it's very bloody. It's a terrible scene. But thankfully, this one girl is uh, still alive. And they decide, uh, the group, to ride her back into town. They run into Jane on the way back. And she takes hold of the girl as they go back into town. Uh, so... In uh, this last scene here, uh, we're going back into town this morning. Uh, Garrett is getting ready for the day. Alma's pretending to be asleep. So you can tell that there's like a distance here that Garrett is kind of unaware of, right? Like Alma, she she doesn't really want much to do with this Garrett guy. I almost get a sense that she's also from money and maybe their families put them together. Not really having much of a choice in it herself. But if you like, he's dressed all nice and he's getting ready for his day of work. Gold, like he's gonna go gold Russian. Like. Yeah, and he's dressed in this nice suit. He's gonna go out like pan, um, you know, sifting through uh, for gold. Uh, very naive guy, of course. And there's a funny scene later where he gets some mud on him. And he's like, oh, you know, he's a little taken aback. Uh, so uh, we also get a scene here of uh, Trixie in the gem saloon. Uh, drinking with a patron named Ellsworth. He's the prospector he's... from uh, the very beginning that was talking with Al. Ah, yes, yes. So Ellsworth, I mean, he must have been drinking there all day. And it's, you see them drinking again in the morning. It's like these people are always drinking whiskey. Nothing else to do. You don't yeah. have TV. That's a very good point. So Ellsworth is showing a little concern for Trixie. You know, like, you know, what's, what's going on? You could talk to me about it. You know, why, why is your face so beat up? And she says, like, you know, it's none of your business. You don't want to know what I got to take off my chest. And it's kind of a literal line because then we see the shot of the uh, the gun in her uh, in her breasts. So uh, now we see uh, Doherty and Farnham breaking into Driscoll's room, stabbing him to death. It's a very quick scene there. They take care of him. Brutal. Yeah, yeah. They just bust right in. And Doherty is like... Just be quiet, Driscoll, <laughs> and as he, as he stabs him. So it, it very quick, and again, no scruples about this. This is just a regular thing. You can tell these guys have done this before many times. Uh, so finally, the posse returns to town with the girl, and they go get the doc, bang on his door, and yeah, he uh, he takes her. And Jane goes with her to uh, make sure that the girl's taken care of okay. It's interesting. She's already kind of invested. You know, when she took the girl from um, from Bullock, yeah, I guess she had seen her earlier with the family, and so I, you can tell she already has a connection and concern for this for this kid. I would say, like maybe like a motherly instinct, or just that, like something just kicks in with Calamity Jane. Not only throughout this episode, but throughout, like, not to spoil, not to really spoil it, but that girl becomes like a major like part of deadwood right yeah that's I, i'm not surprised actually i mean there's 
a reason here they're setting this up where her family is killed, but she survives, right? If a character survives like something of that, of that tragedy, you know, in a pilot episode, there's a reason that she, that character's going to have more purpose down the road. So in this, uh, confrontation scene we're going to have now uh, Bullock is telling Mason that you know, he sees through his lies he, he figures that Mason had a hand in ransacking this family and killing them and Mason is denying it but he and uh, but Bullock and Hickok they stand together they order Mason off his horse he refuses and is about to draw his gun when Hickok and Bullock, they draw faster and shoot Mason dead right off his horse. And they joke, like, which one of us was that? It's probably Hickok. My money be on you. And uh, we see a shot of Mason there shot through the eye. Very brutal. And even though this is, like, early morning, all like all the main character residents witness this. They witness Everyone's this watching. brand of justice. Alma's watching. Garrett's watching. Uh, Doc is watching. Al's watching. Like... Al's watching. And you know, this is like a, this thing has to happen not all the time. I mean, probably all the time, but you know, it, it's, um... it's different though. Like this was, this is like, a well, these are newcomers, new, right? These newcomers are two... bringing in like a, like a brand of justice that just happened. Right. And you, you might think that people do get away with these crimes like Mason's all the time. And now this is the guy who is, kind of getting a bit of justice in a place that is known for being lawless. So it, it is um, maybe a new era for Deadwood. And Al and, feels that. He starts yes. to feel that at, at, in the very end of this. Right. He's silent when he's watching this and gets into bed. And I got a sense, too, that his routine is being up all night running the saloon and that he sleeps through most of the day. But that was just an interesting note. But as he gets into bed, Trixie comes in. She puts her gun on his nightstand for him to see. So a little defiance there. And then she gets naked and curls up with him. So the relationship there, I'm like, okay. So do they have something going on? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, it's like you are my – you are kind of like, you know, that's his property, at least how he sees it. Right, right. But Trixie, Uh, Trixie, I think – Stands above the others, where that she, like he could have killed her, like there is. I'm not saying I don't want to even use the word affection, but there is like, at most respect, and at least she has respect for him, uh, to even show him the gun. Right. Yeah, and he is going to maintain uh, a sort of indifference as she curls up with him. He's just kind of looking straight. And that's the last shot is him kind of looking right into the camera with this cold expression on his face. Change is coming. That's what he's, he's like. Some like I yes. just witnessed change coming. Right. He, he He's it's stoic, right? He doesn't have a look of fear, but he has a look of maybe unhappiness. Like he, you could tell there's a lot of thoughts brewing in his head. The status quo is going to be shaken up. Right, right. And then that just uh, speaks to the power of Ian McShane's acting that he can convey so much in such a, not to say blank expression, but there's a lot there, right? And uh, he, he, he can convey that so subtly. Them Indians, goddammit! Too much ransacking and too many goods left behind. Someone was after money. Goddamn, if I had something to do with what happened, why'd I come to this camp, huh? 
Maybe when it got thick out there, you ran. Maybe the others was going to ground, but you had to have pussy. Or get to a Pharaoh layout. I felt that way sometimes after a kill. Get down off your horse. Or face the consequences. So there we have it. That's the end of the episode. <laughs> that was a lot. There's a very plot-heavy pilot, but that's Western for you. You know, there's always going to be a lot going on, a lot of characters with a lot of different objectives, and we're being introduced to this world. I would say if the pilot at interests you and you like Westerns, you like these actors, this is definitely a show to get into, and we'll probably talk about it. It's one of those, like, not rare but few hbo shows that have gotten canceled well yes i want to speak to that uh so this show ran for three seasons the shortest run of the hbo shows we've discussed so far for a total of 36 episodes and i think a big part in its cancellation from what i've read and come to understand is the budget which we mentioned earlier the big budget show. You know, basically every episode is like a movie in a way. You know, this is just uh, you need to have a really huge audience to justify uh, a show with such a high production value. Uh, and so the costs, unfortunately, were not justified by the viewership, which was in line with the other series, but not. It had to be higher. the The bar was higher because you know, think of the other dramas we've discussed. They were contemporary. The Wire. Sopranos, Six Feet Under, those don't need a giant budget. You don't need to build a big Western set and have all these costumes and maintain authenticity, and the scale wasn't as big. And David uh, Simon from The Wire always felt lucky that he got another season. Right, because that show, I believe, had the lowest average viewership, at least towards the fourth and fifth season, whereas, um, yeah, I think Deadwood, if it had, uh, if you if you put it on the same playing field as the other shows, you would give it maybe like a like you know four or five seasons, maybe a six. But I would give it you know, four or five, just because. Yeah. At least yeah, maybe just needed one more, will, right? It's funny because HBO at uh, in the past couple of years has transitioned putting shows on Monday, and I always wondered if like a show like The Wire or Deadwood, maybe the first season, uh, would be would do well on a Monday, and then word of mouth would say like, okay, we now know how popular the show is or could be, and we're going to put it on Sunday. Because the ratings from season one to season two, it did kind of shrink, and, and that's unfortunate. But I don't – I realize that it, it's not that the show isn't for everyone. It's just I think you kind of have to have a real interest in history, westerns, like this kind of history specifically. But there is something – it's a kind of a hard sell a little bit. Yeah, I think as the Western genre goes, I think that the the brutality of it all, it's at a level that you didn't see in a lot of other Westerns. And so that makes it not as palatable. And right, the historical aspect of it, yeah, I think that this is another show that, like The Wire, being so plot heavy, it does require more of its audience to be a little more active and being that there's so many plot lines, I could see how it could be easy to get a little lost. Um, and interestingly enough, the other show that we mentioned, Rome, which we won't be going into, we won't be giving a whole episode towards Rome, but 
that only lasted one season, right? Or was it two? I think it was it two was seasons. It was two seasons. Right. That lasted two seasons. But that also, I believe, got canceled largely due to the budget. Another period piece, a very cinematic show. And so HBO here, you know, very ambitious that they take on these projects. But if you're going to do something at a higher scale, then they need to be able to justify that. And an average audience is not going to do that. They would need a mega huge audience to justify such a huge scale production. They would eventually be able to accomplish that some years later with the iconic show that we will discuss later in this HBO pilot series. You know what show I'm talking about. We will get there, but not quite yet. Uh, in the meantime, unless we have any other thoughts on Deadwood. I, when you suggested Deadwood, I was going to say at one point in time, I would have said no. Like I did not watch Deadwood for a while because because of the fact that it was canceled and I, my thoughts of watching a canceled show is why find something that I love only to be disappointed without like you know be without an ending or at least closure and that's happened to me with like Glow I know a lot of people feel that way about Firefly Hannibal Rome and maybe we'll tackle that show those shows one day in like another like gone before gone before their time and and deadwood at one point did belong in that category however in 2019 they uh hbo uh, friday night released a movie deadwood movie and that kind of serves as like it's very good and it's it takes place 1889 the day uh dakota the dakotas become a state and it does kind of wrap up uh, not only Deadwood, the story of Deadwood, and but I would say David Milch's career because I think he's in his eighties. But and it's a very bittersweet, but very excellent way to close the Deadwood story. So if it, it if you're worried about like storylines not being wrapped up or anything, I would say Deadwood is completed. Well, that's a really good point, right? It should be worth mentioning that they did conclude the story with the the movie and it's very cool that most of the actors right the vast majority of the actors did come back for it they did so, so that's very satisfying to see that i think the fans have been wanting it for a very long time and uh they did finally get it because i know this show did have um honestly a cult following it, but the, it grew the, the people the people who stuck with the show were very big fans obviously very sad when it got canceled after season three but they did get the conclusion that they had been asking for for all these years. So that's that's good to see. And I do think HBO tends to listen to its viewers. And uh, yeah, this was a good moment for the network to to honor them and to put um, you know put a justly deserved conclusion to the series. I always think of a show as popular, or at least like it hits your criteria popular and beloved and it gets canceled. For whatever reason, give the fans a movie or at least like a yeah. TV movie. Something to wrap it up, right? Don't just end it without giving some sort of payoff. And I, from what I understand, too, the, the executives like the show a lot, too. It's like I said, they just they couldn't justify signing off another season of of uh, high production costs. I think when you look at it, like I'm kind of curious what the actors budget because like. There's a lot of well-known names in this point, and they're like I'm not saying they're like, they're of course they're not A-listers, but when you have a bunch of B-plus stars, that still adds up. 
there's I mean, it's just a huge cast so you know that's that's obviously gonna be a big part of it especially in season two and three as maybe some of the lead actors negotiate bigger contracts as well that will uh, i'm sure the the cost might have even gone up from one to two and two to three uh but there you have it deadwood and i i think that it should also be considered among the the crown jewels of the other that we consider the other programs to be in terms of the crown of hbo and uh with that being said uh we will be moving on we're going back to comedies a show that is maybe not necessarily considered a crown jewel by everyone uh but it is definitely one that is worth discussing it is entourage moving on to that next week (laughs) definitely a a 180 in terms of uh tone and genre going back to hollywood baby that's right Uh, i i've never seen uh entourage so this will be interesting for me i there's always been a lot of talk about it but i'll find out for myself (laughs) (laughs) okay this should be good all right man uh excited to tackle that and i'll see you at the next pilot Follow us on Instagram and X, formerly Twitter, at Take Us to the Pilot. That's Take Us to the Pilot with the number two. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day.